Hello and welcome to episode 210 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is the singer and songwriter from the incredible See You Space Cowboy. Yes, I'm joined by Connie Scabosa. We get to talk to Connie in great detail about her musical influences to date, the band's history and touring life, the importance of the LGBTQIA community, but this interview does get very deep. We get to discuss Connie's drug addiction, suicide attempts, and how addiction has led to Connie losing many loved ones and the importance of rehab. This for me is one of the most open and honest interviews that I've ever conducted for Mark and Me, and I'm very thankful to Connie for being so open, so honest, and trusting in me and this podcast in doing this interview. I'm very proud of this and I can't wait to share it with you. In true typical Mark and Me fashion, I do like to touch base and talk about my last episode. On episode 209, I was joined by the absolutely amazing Derek Descanio from the awesome band State Champs. This was an amazing interview and I'm so grateful for him for coming on the show. Some amazing downloads, some incredible feedback and honestly one of my favourite interviews. But today, it's all about me and Connie, and I can't wait for you to hear this. So I think the best thing to do right now is to get straight to it. So here's me and Connie talking all things music. So Connie, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Connie, what I like to do today for the listeners out there that might be discovering your band for the first time is take it right back to the very start. So I want to know when you were growing up, what was that first album that you bought that made you fall in love with music? Um, I would probably have to, um, give that to, see, it's, it's hard because when I was younger, like I first started getting the punk, I didn't really give, give a shit about albums, but it's definitely like Black Flag was probably the first band that made me be like, oh, this is music that like me, an untalented person can make. Like I can just yell. Um, and I was like 10 at the time, nine or 10. And so I definitely like probably like give it to like Black Flag or like JFA as like the, the first like bands that were like the thing that made me realize that like I can like be a part of music, even though like I didn't dedicate my life to like playing it. And then it, of course it kind of evolved uh, to like where I am now. But like that was definitely like the start. It was like being like a little 10 year old kid in like sixth grade skating and listening to Black Flag and then really wanting to start a band after that. And what about live bands? Because obviously when you buy a CD or a record when you're growing up, you listen to it to death. It's not like you could stream back then. But to go and see a band live is when you really kind of get an experience of, you know, how a band can be so, provide so much adrenaline and a rush when you go and see them on stage. What was that first show you remember going to that made those hairs stick up on your neck and you're like, oh my God, like this is what I want to do? So I have like two instances because there's it was a weird, high school was kind of a weird like, it's like a realization era for me. But the first one was seeing Ceremony in 2009 at the Che Cafe. Um, I remember, because before that, I had seen like legacy bands like Dead Kennedys, JFA. I'd seen them play Old Man on stage at like House of Blues, like big venues. Didn't really like give me like the drive, but seeing Ceremony at the Che Cafe, which is a, a venue we've had down here. It's like a vegan anarchist like non-hierarchical no one owns it it's run by a collective um seeing them seeing ceremony play in this room to like 200 kids packed into like a room that probably could only hold 150 at most um and like discovering like the diy scene was like a major moment for me to be like this is something i want to be a part of i think i was like 13 at the time maybe um but then a year later is when I got my introduction to like Screamo or like the old OG Screamo. I it was a time when I was like randomly just hopping on the bus after I got out of school to go see um, whatever show at the Check Cafe. I wouldn't know who was playing. I just wanted to go, yeah, just to go. And I saw this band called Ten Thousand Leagues play, and it was like my first introduction to like people. You know, like the singer was like throwing like the mic over the raptors and like wrapping it around his neck and just like screaming and rolling on the floor like going crazy and that was like my first um exposure to like oh like punk isn't just mad like you can also be like sad and like, you can just like literally like lose your mind entirely so that was a big moment for me when i started to like, shift away from like 80s hardcore to like the more emotional side of music 
um, because at that point I started to get more sad and less mad, you know, I was, started to deal with like depression and stuff. So it was definitely a pivotal point for like where I started to shift, not into like what Space Cowboy is, but like more into that, like the, the more hidden emotional side of hardcore. And was there a point at that moment that you thought you'd only ever do that as a career? Like you're only going to be in a band. You only want to sing. There's never an option to go and work in a shop or do a normal office job. You're always going to be just focused on purely writing. Well, I actually never have had a moment like that. Uh, the weird thing about me and music is I never even wanted to do this as a career. I would always focus more on like art and graphic design. And like that yeah. was kind of the thing. So like, even like with when like space cowboys started like getting label offers and stuff like that like it was never something that i or the band was like really pushing for um so it's really interesting when people always ask me like what's the secret to success like how do you get big like how do you do it and i you know the only i don't i don't know because like we never wanted that we never tried for it we literally would just um book 42 day tours ourselves because we just wanted to go play the country i wanted an adventure so to this day it's still kind of just this thing that's fallen in my lap and i'm i just told myself i was like about to go to college and um i kind of, and then the offers came in i said i'd be stupid to not see where this takes me you know did you have the full backing of your family or were they like, look, you need to get a real job. Like you need to study. This is too risky. You know, it's, it's a, it's a make or break time. Or were they like, look, we believe in you. You can do this. Oh, they, they definitely n did not believe in me, but like, I was also the kind of person that left, you know, after I graduated high school and kind of just didn't really have a relationship with my family that much. I like moved to the Bay and I was just doing my own thing. Um, but when like, when I first like started telling them like, Hey, I'm not going to go to college. We're getting signed. At first they were like, they, of course they were like, are you sure? Like blah, blah, blah. But then when they um, started coming to shows and like seeing the amount of kids there and seeing what we were doing, they, they st kind of started to like, especially when we started like getting uh, like managers and like the business side came in. Yeah. Stuff like that. They're like, oh, okay. So like, this is like somewhat feasible. It's not just a pipe dream entirely. You know, when we like went to the UK for the first time, things like like the little like stepping stones and milestones that like my parents have kind of been a bit more okay with the idea and they don't like hassle me about like going back to college or becoming like a graphic designer for Nike or whatever. Um, and, and it's funny because, it, you know, my little brother's in the band too. So it applies for like both of us. Um, he's the kind of same as me, dropped out of college. We just do this now. Um, didn't really know what we we're going to do with our lives. And then now, like, this is the opportunity we're like kind of presented with this silly band that we started a few years ago is now like our lives. And how was it for you during lockdown? So obviously taking two years out of not being really able to do what you do best of going out there performing, being with the band all the time. Was it a time for you to reflect and see if it's still what you wanted? Or did you just kind of become more passionate and driven and want it more than ever so like the pandemic for us it was really hard to not be able to play shows because that's part of my like my favorite part of like being in a band is like touring and playing shows um it didn't it wasn't really a time that we reflected as it as in like are we going to do this but it was a major like upshift for us because like a lot of members left like at the beginning we did a lot of like members changes we brought back a lot of og members who wanted to like rejoin um and we kind of changed up that dynamic and we changed up like the style a bit and we kind of like, took the pandemic as like a pause breathe um with this new lineup like i was the only person in the band who had played on the last album so it's kind of just like what do we want to do now because space cow has always been this band of like we go through like little eras and it's not because we're changing sounds to be more marketable or whatever it's literally just every time we sit down and write an album it's like well what do you want to do now? Like what, what, what's going to make you feel fulfilled? Like, you know, so we really used the entire pandemic to write, you know, we did the split with Evan I first. That was a lot of fun. It was a little fun project to kind of test the waters with like what we wanted to do. And then we spent basically all the pandemic writing and recording um, romance. So it, it just, it, it was, it was sad to not 
be able to play shows, but we, we use our time wisely. And I also just poured myself more into like my other job as like a freelance artist for bands. And I like really upped like what I do in that demeanor or in that like area of my life um, because I had the time finally to like pour into that. Yeah. And, and now that obviously the world is almost getting back to, you know, normality where you can go and tour and there's the UK dates announced and festivals again and all this does it feel like this huge relief that's like it's real it's actually happening again oh yeah definitely i mean when when we did our first tour back it was a really fun little tour with uh if and i first and it was like small it was like three weeks i think but it really set in when we did our headliner for um romance because it was really the first time playing the entire country after the pandemic and the first time really us seeing like how much we had grown because i had no idea i kind of thought we'd be coming back to playing to less people than we did when we like when the pandemic hit but it was like exponentially like almost like twice as many kids in like each city kind of deal so it was like really really cool it was like all the anxiety i had was just like gone it was like it's we're back and like it's better than ever it's amazing uh, with the uk dates so close it's gonna be amazing like it feels that everybody's now just announcing tours all the time because they're just kind of catching up for lost time, which is awesome. Um, it's insane. My diary is mental. I'm sure yours is the same. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild. And especially wild to like go back across the pond again because I didn't think that that would happen for a while. Um, so it's like something that's really exciting for me because I love going over and doing UK and EU tours. Um, the UK saved this band's life we almost broke up while we were in germany and they came to the uk and then the shows were so amazing they were like yeah it's worth it's worth it y'all like keep going um so i'm beyond excited to like head back over and just like have like that it adds on to that feeling of like things are back in like full force like we are go again like we're going to other countries like it's no like it's like it's time to like put everything back into it do you feel in a better place now? Do you feel happier? Do you feel like the lineup is solid that, you know, you said you had a lot of changes and all this, but do you feel that your yourself in your kind of headspace is in a good place that you're ready to go and tour and be around the right people and not get into a position where you, you know, you, the band nearly break up again? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, this lineup of the band has, has been probably the most stable we've had and it's been the best working like internally and stuff. So it definitely feels like great because like, yeah, we don't have, there's no conflict. There's no, you know, fights. It's just, it's, it's just a well-oiled machine at this point of just like everybody writes together now. It, it used to kind of just be one person would write stuff and we'd all be like, okay, cool. Now it's like, we we're like sharing ideas. We're like really like figuring out what we want to do for our next, our next release. Like it's, it's really, really nice and a breath of fresh air to have like a lineup that I feel is as close to permanent as we can get instead of like the myriad of lineup changes that we've had in the past. And do you feel better yourself? Obviously I don't want to dive too much into it, but there is, you know, you don't hold back on this. You put it on your own bio and all the, the links and stuff. You nearly died of a drug overdose. You know, it must be a very scary time. Do you feel like you're in a much better place now? I feel like I'm definitely better than I was a year ago. Um, I mean, of course, any any addict would tell you that there's still the struggle is always real. Like even no matter if you're you know clean for three weeks or clean for three years, um, the struggle is always there. I definitely feel better than I have in a long time with like touring back, um, with like being able just to have something like fill my time. Cause I have yeah. so many who struggles with being alone and struggles with like idle hands, I guess you could say. Um, so being able to like, you know, the next six months we're on tour for approximately four of them, you know? So it's like really something that keeps me clean, keeps me away from like my vices. Uh, well, most of them at least. And um, it is, it's nice to just be busy. I don't, I don't do well just sitting on my hands at home. Have you had to make any major changes? Because, you know, we're talking about music and touring, but depression and uh, addiction is huge. And I never shy away from it. And I've had guests on here that are open to talk about it because people do listen and suffer and some people aren't uh, confident enough to tell others. Uh, I think that's the biggest problem. But if you've made changes with the people around you or what have you done differently to kind of avoid slipping back into that place? 
Um, I'm, I mean, I haven't really had to do much because luckily the people, most of the people I surround myself with don't. I was like kind of like the, the black sheep, so to speak, of like I'm really the only one in Space Cowboy or like my immediate friend group down here who struggles um, with, you know, this addiction problem. I have, I have, there are a lot of people around me who are ex-addicts who, you know, are really nice to talk to and be like, you know, because they can relate. They can be like, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling today. Or, you know, I'm really, I'm really craving or like, I'll like, you do my normal thing. of like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to like hit up the dealer. Um, and they'll be like, no, 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 like, no, you're not like, just chill out. You'll be fine. La da da. So it's, I haven't really had to change a lot. Um, because I just, I have a good support system. It's more just like keeping, holding myself accountable. And even when I do slip up, when I do relapse and stuff like that, um, understanding that like it's not an excuse to say fuck it and just go dive in head first it's more you need to just be like okay like i i fucked up it happened um but i need to like get right back on it and be like um no especially it's and especially hard being bipolar because you know i'll have manic episodes and i'll do things without even realizing it and i'll wake up you know two days later being like what what did i just do and it's in those moments where like i really have to like make sure I like stabilize myself and be like, it's okay. You know, I'm sure I did a lot of terrible stuff. Like I'm sure I sent some really messed up videos of me doing things that probably made people really angry, like in group chats and stuff. And I'm sure people are upset with me for like relapsing and doing whatever, but I just need to like hold myself accountable and like go back to like trying my best to not indulge in that side of me. That's like extremely self-destructive. The, the thing is with addiction as well, isn't it? You can't just switch a button and change overnight. And I think a lot of people expect, oh, they've gone to rehab or, oh, they, they're not doing drugs anymore. You're never going to just completely change, are you, overnight? No, I mean, and, and, it, and that's kind of why I was so, I've been trying to be so honest with, with things and especially with romance, why I was so honest with like my addiction, my mental health issues, because like, yeah, it's not as simple. And unfortunately, we, we pretty much only hear about like the death of someone or the, their success after yeah. you know and we never hear about the process because it is any addict will tell you that like you will relapse you're never you're not gonna just gonna wake up one day and be like i'm not gonna do drugs and like live the, the rest of your life sober it's just not gonna happen um it is an ongoing process like you know i currently i am around one one month clean um from opiates um but that's not to say that i'm gonna come back from this two-month tour and you know slip up but it doesn't mean that i'm going back to being a full-on addict and i'm not going to be nodding off on my couch again you know for weeks straight um it's just it's it's it is a process and it's it's really hard it's and, and it's hard for people who've not experienced it to understand that even like the process of quitting is scary because like withdrawal is gnarly like i've you know i've done benzo and opiate withdrawals at the same time to the point where people are telling me you need to go to the hospital or like you might have a seizure and die um so like even when you get to the point of like building up the capacity to quit you have to deal with a lot of hurdles whether it's like the physical pain of withdrawal um what and then followed by the worst like mental like agony that you can probably experience um so like it is hard it's not as simple as we want to make it seem where it's just like put you in the facility you come out you're good it's not like that. It is a process that lasts years and years and years. I really respect your honesty there because a lot of people try and sugarcoat it and say, oh, yeah, I'm fine now. I'm clean. I'm I'm never going to go back there. But you know that there are going to be times that you relapse again. You know that there's going to be times that you will be tempted and probably delve into it again. But it's about getting the balance, isn't it? So it's not over like so it doesn't overcome you and put you in a yeah. place where you could, you know, die, which we don't want. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really is it's it's a lot, that cliche thing of once an addict always an addict is true to an extent. It's not, and it's not to say that like you'll always do whatever you can to get drugs. You'll always you know always be doing them. It's just that you will always carry that mentality around with you. I mean, it will always you'll always have those random cravings. You'll even if you're five years down the line. I mean, I I've, I've talked to people who are sober for ten years. I'm like, yeah, sometimes I still get quote unquote triggered and sometimes I will still wake up in a cold sweat and really want to like find that fool's number but you just have to not 
and you have to like stay strong and like understand that you'll never have a normal relationship. You might have been able to do minor drugs and stuff when you're younger and it's fun. It's like experimental, but you'll never be like that ever again. Any any slip up is a potential to just dive headfirst into it, even if it's just I'm going to do Molly because I'm going to a rave. It's like, well, that might mean that you wake up and go and get cocaine, benzos, and you would dive back into opiates like oh, a few days later, you know. It, you just need to understand that, like this is your life now like you made your bed you have to lay in it but it doesn't it's not like a woe is me depression life's terrible it's just hey like pick yourself up and keep going was it initially something to try and um distract you from everything else that's in your head to so just to try and numb pain to try and stop your thoughts getting too dark or was it just a, a, a kind of a, an energy boost to go out and feel better so it started off for me really like I experimented in high school and you know I drank I did I did drugs like just for fun I and then I didn't touch really anything not even alcohol for years and then um I found out that Molly was a good way to cure my social anxiety I found I, I was living in Oakland there's a lot of parties a lot of like people fix up abandoned buildings and throw raves in them it's, it's like part of like the culture up there and I would never go because I was so anxious so one day I just decided to take some Molly and it just made my social anxiety go away and I had the time in my life so it was like a double-edged sword at first but then it really got bad after my ex Natalie killed herself because that's when I was definitely masking I didn't want to properly grieve I didn't want to feel anything so I started getting blackout drunk every day and then it moved into other substances I started you know doing a lot of benzos I then you know to offset this like sluggish depression I started doing a lot of cocaine and then eventually down the line, it was, I just got out of hand. I was just, I admit, I went from taking a lot of uppers to doing only downers just to like not feel a thing. And um, it just, it snowballed like in, in the, in the, in the way that like we, you know, there's like those silly things that are like weeds, a gateway drug, gateway drug, blah, blah, blah. It's not so much that it's, it's that it's, you, your emotions are almost a gateway. You will, if you let it, you will tumble until you know, I wake up and I'm, you know, smoking Oxycontin and making crack at the same time. And it's like, wow, how did I get here? What am I doing? And then you just have to like, then you have to begin the arduous journey of recovery. And with losing someone that's so close to you, um, do you feel you've still got that buried and you're trying to avoid it? And that's a very deep question, but is it something you still don't feel you can face? Is it got to be more time to kind of become reality in your head or are you just trying to put it back and just not even think about it? I, I feel at this point, cause it's been three years, three and a half years. Um, it is something I'm more willing to face, but definitely took me a long time to like be willing to get that, um, to be willing to get to that point. Like currently it is something that I can look at and be like, yes, it was a very sad thing. I've definitely come to terms with it more than I have in the past when I was just doing using sex and drugs and people essentially i was i was a big part of the romance of affliction and like why i called it that is because i you know in order to escape my pain i've done a lot of things that like i'm not like proud of you know i've used people i've used substances to do anything for years to avoid it but now i feel like in the last six months it's something i've finally and really coming to terms with without having and then able to face and think about without having just a complete mental breakdown and just like going to like this like insane psychosis that I used to like always delve into where I would go around for like a week straight and I would be so fucked up that I would insist that Natalie was still alive and you know people around would be like she's not like part of the reason you're like this is because she's not but I was I was so detached from reality I would believe it um but yeah, in the last six months, I've definitely been able to, to like face it and like properly grieve and like come to terms with it instead of just trying to constantly run away. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Because no one wants to face the reality of it and you can't change the outcome, but you kind of eventually know that this time will run out and you do have to kind of accept the worst. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it definitely takes you to a really dark place and it, it it's hard and for me is my first major run in with death and so like i would always been really you know almost cocky and confident about like 
I accept death as part of life, you know, being younger. I'm like, it is what it is, blah, blah, blah. But really being confronted with it for the first time really was way more than I thought it would be, especially somebody who, you know, weeks prior I was hanging out with and someone I love. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really is something that's very difficult to face when you're actually, when it actually comes down to it. And of course, the sad reality is that like, I'm, you know, I'm lucky to have just lost one person. I have friends who have lost 20, 30 to, to drugs and such um, drugs or suicide or um, so it, it is a, a really difficult thing to come to terms with the permanence of death. Like knowing that like you can't go back in time. You can't just like go visit this person, like make, make things better for them. You can't, you can't help them. And like, that was like something that like was really pertinent when I wrote late December was this idea of like, like, I'm sorry, I couldn't help you. Like I thought I'd be able to, you know, um, and it's really hard, especially when you're dealing with someone who you know is in danger of ending their own life. And I knew for a whole year because Natalie told me from the get go, Hey, if you're going to fall in love with me, you should know that I might not be around for that long. Like I've been, you know, and it was me being like, oh no, I can like help. I can like make it better. Like I can like, I'll like help, I'll keep you alive. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it's a fool's errand because it's not going to work out. You know, if somebody wants to depart from this world on their own terms, they will. Um, so there's, there's, def there's definitely this, this other side of feeling like I failed. Um, when like in reality, like I, I know now that like, it's not my fault. Yeah. But I definitely felt for a long time that like, it was my fault. And like, I like failed there. And that's the worst, isn't it? Because you're going to feel that guilt on a whole other level and you can never have that conversation to confirm that it wasn't you that caused it or anything. Yeah. So you're kind and of left with your own thoughts, which sometimes that can be the worst. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was, it was nice. Like her family, you know, I had a good relationship with them and they always told me like, Hey, like, you know, even if, you know, Natalie died in the end, we're thankful because you helped, you helped keep her alive for longer. So that, like we could spend, we could all spend more time with her. Like they, they really like, I didn't really want to accept it at first when they told me that years ago, because I was all just in this headspace of, I failed, I failed. But like looking back now, I can like appreciate those kinds of statements. Cause it's like, you know, like, yeah, I, in the end, what happened happened, but like to know that like people appreciate that, like I did help her and kept her, helped keep her going and like made her happy and like her, somewhat in her last like year of life is like, it means a lot to me now. It's not something I could appreciate back then, but like now I can look back at it and be like, life is like life goes on life is what it is and like people make their own choices and like we we all choose how we go about life and what we do for other people and such yeah it was too raw wasn't it the timing was way too yeah. much for you to even try and digest the fact that you'd lost her never mind come to terms with how it happened yeah but so, when when we're talking uh, my kind of head processes thoughts and there might be people that think this about you and think, I hope Connie's going to be around. I hope Connie doesn't go too far. I hope they're in my life for a long time. Yeah. And the way we're talking about your ex, there might be people having the same conversation about you. And I really hope that, you know, there's a different outcome for you. Yeah, I mean, I hope so too. And that was something I had to come to terms with when, um, when I overdosed because there's like, you know, they're like my girlfriend was the one who found me on the couch and, you know, called the paramedics and had me Narcan twice, but at, I definitely had to come to terms with the fact that like, I'm doing almost the same thing. And I'd be putting Chloe through the same thing that I went through in a way. Um, and I never, I didn't really think about that because I was, I was incredibly selfish a year ago. It was more just like, fuck off. I'm going to do whatever I want to my body. If I choose to leave this world, like I will leave um, without realizing that like, you know, to wake up and like, kind of like, like almost a movie, have my vision fish-eyed and have Chloe, my little brother, and Tay, our bassist, just standing over me, me not even knowing what happens and like having to be told that like, hey, you just almost died. And and me being such, so arrogant that it's just like, I don't even care. Like, I'm just like, I, so. It's like, you know, like, and there's even like a debate over whether I did it on purpose or not. And like, I don't even know if I did it on purpose or not because I don't remember anything about that night. I, I took... 10 bars of Xanax and I snorted 30 milligrams of oxy. And then, you know, 
who knows what my intentions were. Um, but it, it's, it's definitely a sobering moment from when I realized, oh shit, I'm putting my people I care about through that too. Um, and like, I, you know, I realizing that it's just not fair. I, I shouldn't do that. And like, while like, I still believe personally, like whatever I do to myself is my choice. It realizing it affects everyone around me too, just as I was affected by Natalie's death. And with all this and the grief and everything that happened and the, the close um, to yourself dying through an overdose, with all that going into the writing of your uh, music and you've, you've said before, it's quite cathartic to you. And, you know, it's all these experience that goes into the lyric writing and the songs you're now in a better place. You know, it's 12 months gone. The album's done. It's out there. What happens now about future writing? Because I don't want you to have to go through all that again to try and put pen to paper, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I've never been like the kind of person who will like purposely pick the darkest parts of my life to write about. I just like for romance, I literally took a journal I had kept for two years of like all my thoughts, all, you know, whether they drug induced or sober contemplative after um but when when it comes to like a new writing something new i i always i kind of like the last couple albums have been just building upon the other one because it's kind of been a sequential thing the correlation between entrance and exit wounds was about natalie's death and like my descent into it romance was about the years of dealing with it and dealing with the disappointment that like I had planned for romance to be the I'm better now, like don't give up, it's okay album. And it, I couldn't write that because it wasn't true, you know? Um, and now when it comes to a new album, I'm kind of faced with this dilemma of like, I'm getting better, but I'm still in a really dark place. And yeah. like, how do I convey that duality well? Because romance is kind of just all like, this is my ugly diary of the ugly things I've done. But now I'm in this place where I'm trying to get better, but it's still a dark timeline. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm currently in the process of figuring out how to like express that in a way in music. Cause it's not, it's something that I've never done before. It's always just kind of been like dark, 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 or like extremely political, like early space cowboy was. So it's definitely something I'm like still rattling around my brain, how to like put that out there lyrically. And, and like, really even like what I want to express because you know there's a part of me that's like I don't really even though I am trying I don't really want to write a positive record it's not how I feel right now I'm still even though I'm trying it's still a painful process so there's part of me that wants to just be like the cathartic the most cathartic thing would be to fixate on like the dark parts but then it contradicts what I was trying to say with the romance which is like hey you know, don't idolize me or like what I'm going through this, like don't romanticize the the darkness of like my life or your own life. It's not a good thing. It is what it is part of life it is what we go through. Life is can be a torturous thing, but, but don't romanticize it. Like understand that it's dark and like feel it and you can because you do, but, and you can let it out at shows and let it out with music, but like don't, don't like hold it up as this glorious thing of like, like we, like we had back in the day where everyone would post their like self-harm photos, you know, like I, I have a bunch of cigarette burns on my hands and I fucking hate them. I can't even like, you know, they're like ugly and they're on me forever. It's never something I romanticize and I would never romanticize drug addiction, mental health problems or anything like that. So it's a really hard thing to like quantify without that, like, without people being like, oh, like depression and drugs and, and being bipolar that, and like, you know, like using people to like hide your own feelings and like all these things is like, that's like what's in. It's it's a hard thing for me to come to terms with. I don't, I don't like being, and this is, it goes into something else is I struggle with to this day. I don't like being like a quote unquote idol for people. I've always carried around the mentality of no idols, nobody look up to just myself i'm doing what i'm doing um so i have a hard time coming in terms of the fact that there are a lot of people who look up to me and i get that like especially in queer scene like we, we like it is good for other people to have somebody represent them but for me it's it's something that 
goes against like my being and it's hard because I look at myself as somebody who is such a flawed person, especially in what I do and what I've done. Um, it's hard for me to quantify having all these people look up to me and be like, you're such an inspiration. You're like the reason I came out, like, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's really hard for me to like, it's like two parts of my brain are like battling and I don't know how to like get them to work together to like get that message out that I want to be out there. But isn't it so pure and so important that you're being transparent, that you're not trying to pretend it's all okay. And all the people that these other people can idolize, they've got flaws. They're just not willing to put them out there like you do. Yeah. I mean, transparency is always something I will do. I will, I will never write a fantasy album. I will never come up with things that didn't happen to me. I will always like the band will always be like my expression, like, like in terms of like lyrics and such, like my, um, like in terms of like me as like the vocalist, it will always be my experiences. It will always be my feelings. I will never make anything up. I will always be transparent because I don't see a point to doing what I'm doing if I'm not letting out what I go through. And like, you know, if people resonate with that and if people find solace in like me talking about addiction and things because they might be able to relate and it helps them that's great and and that's something that i i i i'm i'm sorry that that you're going through this similar thing to me but i'm glad that you can relate and like in a cathartic way to it you know and that's why the transparency is so important to me it's why it's so important to like write the songs that i've been writing because if i don't i'll i'd probably fucking explode with uh this podcast i ask every guest it doesn't matter if they're a big film star a director a musician i ask them basically what advice you give to anyone that's trying to become uh you know in that profession so for you someone's listening said it wants to start a band and be a singer like you but i think this is deeper today this interview is more about facing your kind of fears and being transparent now if anyone's listening today let's switch this around a bit if anyone's listening today and they're scared to be the person they are they're not wanting to come out they're not wanting to tell their family the real them what advice do you give to people that are struggling that may have listened to your music and felt inspired but still haven't got that final bit of confidence to just take that step i mean first off I would, I would like people to know that it is okay. You don't have to feel ashamed if you're not, if you're scared or not willing to come out yet. It is, I, I have so many people ask me, like, I want to come out to my parents. I want to come out to my friends, but I know they're going to reject me. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with, you know, fully accepting and understanding that that, that fear is valid. And your concern is valid. I mean, when I first came out, like took my family a long time, they still don't accept it to an extent. Um, and like, not everyone can just say, fuck it. Like I did, like, you know, and when I came out, like I was living away from home. I was living away. I was like, you know, in San Francisco, I was like, you know, the most queer friendly place in the, in the world probably. Um, so it was easier for me. And, and if it's not easy for you and it's not something, don't feel pressured to you can still live a totally valid existence as yourself internally or out in the world outside of the people you're scared to come out to and that's totally okay and if you do want to take those steps to come out you need to understand that you can't like beat people into submission into like accepting who you are you it, you will never you know grab someone and shake them until they start calling you a girl it's like not it doesn't it didn't doesn't work for me i've tried I tried for a long time and it didn't, it doesn't work. And you just need to understand that if you have people in your life who care about you and you care about them, but they're having a hard time accepting it, time is what they need. You know, when I first came up to my parents for years, they still called me by my dead name and such. But now, you know, it's my birthday. I'm going to write happy birthday Connie on my cake. You know, like it just takes time. And understand that like you will have to have tough conversations and you might have to walk people through things that seem easy to you. Like not everyone, some people have a hard time grasping the concept, especially parents, people who've known you for your whole life. You just need to be willing to have those conversations and, and walk through it. And you know, if somebody is 
toxic and completely unwilling in a, in a malicious way to accept who you are and not coming from a place of just struggling to grasp it, but from a place of malice, you need to be willing to take the steps to like cut that person out of your life. If need be, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be like, Oh, they're my family. Like I have to, if they're truly damaging to your life, you need to be willing to walk away and live your own life. Cause sometimes when we come out, there are things that we lose and it's just, it's part of the process. I mean, it's the unfortunate reality of being queer, unfortunate reality of being trans is that sometimes like we drift and move apart from people who can't, you know, are unwilling to accept it in a malicious way or purely because they don't want to. And do you think that's difficult when our society and the way we are is all about popularity? We want the most likes on our photos. We want the most followers. We want this whole thing where we're all guilty of wanting to be popular. So if you're going to do this announcement that might make you unpopular or have a different view for some people, it's such a risk, isn't it? Because you, you always still want to remain popular. Yeah, I mean, it is hard because like losing people is is, is, is difficult. I mean, I losing the support of people who you care about and you thought that they care about you no matter what it is hard and like yeah being i i won't lie being trans is difficult it's not i i get like death threats like you know there's all the, the transphobic comments blah, blah blah like i've grown a, a thick skin and you know i've always kind of been more on the uh side of um less complaining on twitter more like beating the shit out of people who call me a faggot on the street um, I've always just kind of like the way I was raised in the, the, the world I was in was always I carried over that I guess that more like quote unquote masculine mentality from when I was still like confused and like, I put it into like I call it not soft queer but abrasive faggotry where it's like it's I'm always I'm going to fight you like if you if you disrespect me I will fight you um, and I know not everyone's like that and so it's you will you have to understand that you will deal with scrutiny and like especially on the internet there's not much you can do because they're not in front of you you can't just be like i you, you want to fight about it like we can we can duke it out right now um you just need to realize that like you will get hate it's gonna happen it's the internet it's anonymous it's really cool for some reasons and really shitty for others um but just like understand that like if if living like as your true self is important enough to you you will survive you will make it you will crawl through the shit and come out you know living a happier life at least hopefully i can't guarantee that but that's like the hope and like if that's a worthy plunge for you do it if if you if you feel like living as yourself like as it was for me um finally coming out it's it's worth it once you crawl through the shit it's not easy and it never will be it's not easy for me even like you know with i guess my quote-unquote status in the scene and stuff like that it's still not easy uh you become more of a target but it's all about it personally is it worth it to you and if it is then it doesn't matter if you're taking baby steps or huge strides like take the plunge start the process if you're comfortable and just know that it's going to be difficult but it's this is the life we live and this is the world we live in and You're hopefully and we, we hope that the more of us that come out and the more we work towards it then like the future generations won't have to like deal with what we dealt with just as you know we benefit from like riots in the past that were fighting for justice and we you know we benefit from the marches in san francisco your honesty and transparency today has been a thing of beauty and it's so raw but so real and I just want to thank you for being so open today and I know a lot of listeners this podcast will take a lot from today and I really do appreciate it yeah it's my pleasure I mean I I feel like if I've always told myself if I have a platform then like I need to use it you know if I've gotten the opportunity to speak and be seen then like I have to like use it the one final question I have for you today, and I ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast, um, you'll enjoy this. The final piece of music that plays on the podcast is chosen by the guest. So whoever comes on the podcast that gets to choose it. Now, I don't give you time to go away and think about it. I want to know from you a song, and it's not, be, it's not from your own band. It's got to be something that you love. It can be a piece of music from a film, maybe just a band you absolutely fucking adore. 
but a song that then once all this is edited and it's out there for the world to listen to is the outro piece of music for this episode so connie today what is your song that you want that comes to the heart and soul when i ask the question um i pick interstate eight by modest mouse incredible is there a certain reason behind it or do you not want the listeners to know um no i mean i'd love to know it's because it's it's been a song that's gotten me through a lot of shit through high school it's the first tattoo i ever got on my arm was lyrics from that song it's um all, modest mouse is my favorite band of all time like especially old modest mouse so whenever anything's going on in my life it pairs perfectly with modest mouse and especially interstate eight because it's a song about you know just dealing with life you know the dealing with like the feelings of like trudging through life not going anywhere and it it's just a song that's always resonated with me since I was 13. And I'm 27 now, so it's been 14 years. It's stayed as one of my favorite songs of all time. Over half of your life. Yep. That's amazing. I will hopefully catch you on tour in the UK. It's been a long time coming. Uh, I wish you luck with all the tour, with wherever you decide to go with the next album and how you're going to write it, with which members and everything. But thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for wanting to talk to me. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Connie from the amazing See You Space Cowboy. As I said at the start of today's interview, I really believe that Connie is my most open and honest guest I've ever had on this podcast. To go into great detail about such personal and raw subjects really means a lot and to trust in me like that goes a long way. So thank you so much. If you've listened to today's interview and you've enjoyed it, please go and check out the band See You Space Cowboy. And even better, if you get a chance to see them live, go and do it. You will not be disappointed. So much energy, so much emotion, and just one of the best bands out there right now. And if you can't go and see them, just listen to them, or buy a vinyl or CD. Support this band, because they really deserve it. If you've really enjoyed today's episode, it's never going to cost you anything. Mark and me will always be free. But what I do ask is that you share it on your Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All the links are on markandme.com and it costs you absolutely nothing. It's literally the click of a button, but it goes a long way and makes a massive difference for me in this podcast. I'm an independent podcaster and I'm on my own, so any support with marketing goes a long, long way. You might think it's just a retweet or a click of a button to share it on your Facebook, but honestly, it brings a whole new audience to Mark and me, and that's something that money can't buy. So if you've enjoyed today, please share. It really means a lot to me. And if you've really enjoyed today's episode, why not support me on my Patreon page? You can go on there and support me for as little as £1 per month. For that, you're guaranteed eight episodes every month. That's two a week minimum. But not only that, thanks to my amazing friends at Richer Sounds, we have some fantastic prizes each and every month to give away to my Patreons. This alone is worth it, but on top of that, you're going to get some exclusive interviews that are just for Patreons, you get a badge for signing up, some stickers, and so much more. And please, it really does allow the podcast to go out there and go further. It means I can travel, do more podcasts, more interviews, which means more episodes for you guys at home. I want to say again a massive thanks for Connie for coming on the show. I want to say a thanks to all of you guys that have taken the time to listen at home. It means so much to me. And I'll be back in a couple of days' time with a brand new episode. So until then, listen to See You Space Cowboy, take care of yourself, and I'll see you soon.
You go up 